Chapter Twenty of Tom Ossington's Ghost by Richard Marsh. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty, The Fortune. And the fortune. This remark may be made, that had they not found it when they did, there would very shortly have been nothing left to find. Mr. Thomas Ossington had chosen for the treasure chest a simple opening in the wall to which access had originally been gained, by touching a spring. This spring had been concealed under what had probably been a picture of a dog's head, the fifth alternating dog's head on the right-hand side of the bedroom door. When you pressed it, a door flew open, but this primitive treasure-chest, if not entirely obvious to the world at large, was open to the rats and mice and similar small deer, who had their happy hunting-grounds within the wall itself. The result was that, when the contents were examined, it was found that the bundles of banknotes had been gnawed, in some cases to unrecognizable shreds, that meals, hearty ones of the cut-and-come-again description, had been made of parchment deeds, bonds, share certificates, and similar impediments, that coin, gold coin, had been contained in bags, which bags had been consumed, even to the strings which once had tied them. The coins lay under accumulations of dust in heaps upon the floor. On several were actually well-marked indentations, showing that the sharp, gleaming teeth had applied to them a stringent test before finally deciding that they really were not good to eat. A curious spectacle the whole presented when first brought to the light of day. However, in but few cases had the damage proceeded to links which had rendered what was left absolutely worthless. Discovery had come just in the nick of time. The Bank of England was good enough to hand over cash in exchange for the fragments of all notes of which there was satisfactory evidence that there had been once a whole. The various documents which represented property were none of them in a condition which rendered recognition altogether impossible and when it was once established what they were, for all intents and purposes they were as available for their original use as if they had been in a condition of pristine freshness. Altogether the find represented a sum of something like forty thousand pounds. Not a large fortune as fortunes go, but still a comfortable capital to be the possessor of. If fate only had been kind to him, and the men and women who formed his world of finer texture, Tom Ossington might have been as happy as the days were long. Oddly enough, the real trouble came after the fortune was found. The difficulty was as to whom it belonged. Not because the claimants were so many, but because they were so few. It was Madge's wish that it should be divided between those who were actually present at the moment of discovery, maintaining that such a division would be in accordance with both law and equity. Ballingall's continued disappearance resolved the number of these into four. Ella, Jack Martin, Bruce Graham, and herself. The first rift in the loot was caused by Mr. Graham, he refusing point-blank to have part or parcel in any such transaction. He maintained that the fortune had been found by Madge, and that, therefore, in accordance with the terms of the will, the whole of it was hers. In any case, he would have none of it. He had felt on mature reflection that Ballingall's accusations had not been without foundation, that his conduct had been unprofessional, that he had had no right to share his confidence with anybody, that, in short, 
he had behaved ill in the whole affair, and that therefore he had no option but to decline to avail himself of any advantages which were, so to speak, the proceeds of his misbehavior. When she heard this, Madge laughed outright. Seeing that her laughter made no impression, and that the gentleman continued of the same opinion still, she was moved to use language which was, to say the least, surprising. It was plain that beneath the lash of the lady's tongue he was unhappy, but his unhappiness did not go deep enough to induce him to change his mind. When it was obvious that his resolve was adamant, and that by no means could he be induced to move from it, she announced her own decision. "'Very well. If the fortune's mine, it's mine. And if it's mine, I can do what I like with it. And what I like is to divide it with Ella. And if Ella will not have half, then I'll not have a farthing either. And the whole shall go to the Queen, or to whoever unclaimed money does go. And you'll find that I can be as firm, or as obstinate, as anybody else.' "'But, my dear,' observed Ella mildly, "'I never said that I wouldn't have half. "'I'm sure I shall be delighted. "'I need no pressing. "'And thank you very kindly, ma'am.' "'I do believe, Ella,' returned Madge, "'with calmness which was both significant and deadly, "'that you are the only reasonable person "'with whom I am acquainted.' "'So it was arranged. "'The two girls divided the whole, "'which, of course, meant, as Madge knew perfectly, that Jack Martin would have his share. As a matter of fact, Mr. and Mrs. Martin have been husband and wife for some time now, and are doing very well. And it is said, as such things are said, that Madge Brodie will be Mrs. Bruce Graham yet before she dies. It is believed by those who know them best that he would give his eyes to marry her, and that she has made up her mind to marry him. This being so, it would seem as if a marriage might ensue. If such is the case, it appears extremely likely, if Madge ever is his wife, that, whether he will or won't, Bruce Graham will have to have his share. She is as obstinate as he is, every whit. End of chapter 20 End of Tom Ossington's Ghost by Richard Marsh